following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our reading this morning is from Mark 13, 24 to 37, page 826 in your Red Bibles. The coming of the Son of Man. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender, and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a a journey. When he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I will say to all, keep awake. Thank you, Caitlin, for that reading. Thanks for to all of you who've been participating in the service so far. It's lovely to see so many people involved. I wonder what um, what feelings come up for you when the when when you hear that gospel passage. Read. And if you're a brave type of person, you could shout out your answer to that question. How does that passage leave you feeling? Angst. Okay, angst, thank you. Dread. More work. Did you just say more work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Tired of people shouting the night. I know when. <laughs> okay, that's. Um, trying to convert that to a feeling. Uh, t- tired of people shouting, the end is nigh and I know when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's got to be some German word for that, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Exhaustion. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of feelings that I have reading the, the text like that, and I will tell you that some of them are, are not entirely pleasant, right? And sounds like some of you feel the same way. Perhaps not everybody shared their uh, innermost feelings in a, you know, a room full of 100 people and um, a, a millions of people on the internet who watch our services each week. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think it's somewhat normal to read those words and, and feel a little bit of confusion or discomfort or fear or anxiety And I want to tell you, I think that all of those things are valid, and I think it is so important for people who are serious about growing in their Christian faith 
to be honest about the fact that reading the Bible doesn't always make us feel super great. And that's not a reason to stop reading it, necessarily. You know, sometimes reading the Bible and not feeling super great is probably a good thing because it inspires us to make changes in our life. It inspires us sometimes to stop destructive behaviors or thought patterns. It inspires us sometimes to admit our complicity and oppressive systems that exist around us and which we sometimes benefit from more than others, and so on and so on. But also sometimes the text is just a little bit dark, a little bit scary, a little bit confusing, and it leaves us feeling worried and anxious. And that is especially true for those of us, which I recognize not all of us, but for those of us who have uh, history or baggage from people or communities that have leveraged religious fear in order to exert control over others. And so today's sermon title, as you can see on the screen, is Advent Anxiety. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was not in my notes. That just came to me. <laughs> um, do not sing in sermons. Okay. Uh, the season of Advent begins today. For those of you who are not church calendar nerds and didn't know that, um, Advent is the first Sunday in the new liturgical year. You might have seen, um, if you look carefully at the liturgical poster on the way in, that we have a new one that starts this new liturgical year um, off today. The season of Advent is a season when we prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas. Right? Um, <clears throat> I always like to talk about how there are all kinds of cultural traditions that we have that prepare us for the cultural part of Christmas, right? Some of us guard them very closely, have very strong opinions about them. So um, how many people only started playing Christmas music after December 1st? Show of hands. You, you, the people who do that want to show off. I know. Go ahead. Yes. How about you, you only started your Christmas music on Thanksgiving Day or maybe the day after? Thank you. You are all going to heaven first. <laughs> um, how many of you completely unhinged people started playing Christmas music as soon as you put your skeletons back in the garage? I love you too. I love you too. Your crown is going to be a little bit less fancy in the life to come, but I love you anyway. <laughs> right? Um, you know, how many of you have a list of your favorite Christmas movies that you watch kind of in order, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Um, for how many of you is it just the Muppet Christmas Carol on repeat? That's me, yeah. That's good. Uh, Elf, is, Elf is also, yes, definitely makes the list. Um, we had a, a fun time with my mom over Thanksgiving because we are definitely a watch a Christmas movie on Thanksgiving after dinner kind of family. And she was like, you can watch Elf. We have two TVs. I will be in the other room if you watch Elf. <laughs> just not a Will Ferrell person, my mom. Um, I, I love her anyway. My favorite Christmas tradition in my family that we have done since my older son was little, little, is that we, um, at some point in the month of December, on an evening or weeknight, we, we go down, downtown uh, to see all the, the lights that are up in, on all the city buildings, and we stop and get uh, hot chocolate at Java's, and we kind of walk around Eastman and all those places um, downtown. That's like my, one of my family's favorite cultural Christmas traditions. So just as there are all these cultural Christmas traditions that kind of get our brains and our hearts moving toward the day of Christmas, 
We have the same thing in the church uh, that prepares for Christmas as a, a religious observance, and that's called the season of Advent. Um, and it has a liturgical component and some scripture reading components that go with it. It's all in the service of getting us ready for Christmas on a, on a Christian religious level. Right? Um, by the way, for those of you who like to follow along with us and use the, the lectionary so that you know what verses we're going to read in services each Sunday, we are adjusting the way we're using them this season. So go ahead and read all the lectionary passages if you'd like to, but they won't line up quite as well. The reason is that on the third Sunday of Advent, we're doing the, the kids' Christmas pageant, which, uh, amazing. We're, there's going to be lots of grandparents and aunties and uncles and so forth in the room on the 17th, by the way. So what you can do is sit close together and help them make, make room for them. Um, and then on the, four, the fourth Sunday of Advent this year, because of the way the dates fall, is actually Christmas Eve. We won't have any service on Christmas Eve morning, even though it is a Sunday. We have services at 4 and 6 p.m., on Christmas Eve every year. We're just going to do those. And in those services, we read Christmas texts, not Advent texts. So what I've done is kind of take like the, what I think are the most interesting or inspiring Advent texts and kind of mishmash them into these first two weeks of the season, just so you know. Um, so it's a preparation for Christmas, Advent. But Advent also has a second meaning, which is anticipating what is commonly called the second coming of Jesus. Right? The idea that he will... Uh, come again to judge the living and the dead, as the creed says. And this gospel passage from Mark 13 uh, seems to be going in the direction of that second meaning of Advent. It's a little bit less about the cute little baby and a little bit more about the kind of apocalyptic Jesus. Right? Hence the title, Advent Anxiety. So what I would like to do is see if we can unpack this passage a little bit. And this is going to be probably one of those sermons where there's, I do have kind of like a, a, a semi-tidy thing at the end here, if we can get to it. But it's going to be one of those sermons where I mostly am going to be working toward you having tools to read this text in a way that might be more helpful to you and more bringing, uh, bring more peace to you um, or more understanding, Right. So the, the lectionary, what the lectionary does, and that's where we get our text assignments from for worship, is it starts in the middle of Mark chapter 13. And if you would, if you're, if, it might be helpful for you more so than most weeks to have this text in front of you. So if you have red Bibles um, in the seat pockets, you could pull one of those out and go to uh, page 826. If you don't have a red Bible near you or have trouble finding a Bible, um, you could just pull up your phone and Google Mark 13. NRSV, and you would get the text that's the same one that I'm going to be reading. That's, that would give you the same translation of this text, that is to say. Um, but the passage today started in verse uh, 24 of Mark chapter 13. So let's start there. It says, But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And what happens is the sun darkening and the moon not giving its light. What on earth is going on? And the Advent anxiety starts to creep up. And what you have missed in that case is that this is one of those verses that really does not permit you to start here. Right? It says pretty clearly, in those days after that suffering. So it seems like it's referring to something that came before, correct? Does that make sense? You know that my, one of my liturgic or my, my hermeneutical rules, which is to say one of my rules for reading and interpreting the Bible is, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? This doesn't have a therefore in it, but it kind of has the same type of thing. So what days? What suffering? 
before we get on to the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. So um, what I would say is let's just jump up to the previous paragraph. The paragraphs are editorial. They're not in the original manuscripts that, that or the copies of the manuscripts that, that we work from with this historical literature, this ancient stuff. But let's go back to verse 14 because that's where the editors put a break. Let's see if we can make more sense of that as a starting point. Okay, but when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, by the way, let the reader understand was not me offering a little interpolation. It was the the author. And I don't know if he means like good luck guys or what because I don't know about you, but it doesn't give me a lot more feeling of peace. It doesn't help me understand totally what's going on. But it does go on to say, you know, if you're on the housetop, don't even bother going down into the house to leave. Um, Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing infants. Pray that it will not be in winter. There will be much suffering. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. Okay, so that last sentence maybe starts to take the edge off of some of the stuff that he's been saying leading up to it. But that's what kicks into the the passage where the passage picks up today. But it still doesn't quite give me any sense of what's going on here. So let's go back one more paragraph. All right. Verse 9 is, the, is where the paragraph break happens in, in my Bible anyway, so let's go there. As for yourselves, okay, even that's kind of like a therefore, isn't it? As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. Okay, how many have you, I, I don't mean this to be as flippant as it sounds, but how many of you have been beaten up in a synagogue this year? Okay, it's starting to feel like maybe this isn't for us. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say, but whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You will be hated all, by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I still need to go back one more paragraph. I don't know about you. That didn't exactly help me feel oriented to what Jesus is even talking about here. Do you see how this work has to be done? If you're going to get to the meaning of what starts in verse, was it, 24? We're now going all the way back to verse 1, and I think we're finally going to find something that gives us a little bit of a frame of reference. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. If you don't know what to say to Jesus, just like point at something and go, Wow, look at that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's like if you ever met your, like, your, your hero, if you ever met Michael Jordan or something, or Trey Anastasia or whoever your hero is, you'd be like, Look at that tree. (laughs) Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, 
asked him privately, this is like his inner circle, asked him privately, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, uh, not an answer to their exact question just yet, but beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then he says, as for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to the councils. You're going to be beaten up in the synagogue for what you believe about me, Jesus says. Then he goes on to say, but when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, and Mark goes, let the reader understand what he's talking about here and probably what he's not talking about, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And only then does he get to verse 24, or what we, what we call verse 24. But in those days after that suffering, and then he goes on to say all of the other things that we heard him say in the passage that Caitlin read about 10 minutes ago. Now, what I have not given you is like a specific interpretation of reassurance and of peace. But what I did say about halfway through is kind of where I want to sit for a minute. It feels like this is not for us. It's, it, I mean, some of it is, right? And we have to figure that out. But it feels like a lot of the stuff, frankly, that is used like most bombastically in sermons and Bible studies and... Uh, evangelistic crusades was not really meant for people in the 21st century in the United States of America. It feels like it was very specifically intended for his close disciples, people in Judea. Some of what he said was literally spoken just to the four closest ones of his inner circle. How much of that even applied to the other disciples? I'm not saying it didn't, but those are the types of questions we have to ask ourselves. Look at what's actually happening in the passage and say to yourself, is this for me? And I actually think, because of my view of scripture, I actually think that pretty much all of it is for us in some way or another. <laughs> but not in every way. I, I'm, the frustration is emanating off of you at what I just said. I get it. It's confusing, hard work, and it feels like I'm being wishy-washy, perhaps. And maybe I am. But I don't think so. How do you tell the difference, especially with a passage like this, about what's for you today and what was for them in that day? Now, I'll kind of reiterate and expand on what I said just a minute ago, which is the stuff that was for them in that day can still be for us today. We just have to kind of think about it a little bit differently and say, what is that meaning for them and what does that meaning mean for me? And then there's other times where it's like, yeah, that's pretty much for everybody. So I'll give you a, it's, it's sort of like it's not even really a sermon, but if it was, it would be an entire sermon. It's probably more like a, a 
class on reading the Bible, which is something that I would love to teach at some point, like at a level that's not super academic, that's just for normal people who want to read it and understand it better. I love talking about that stuff. I can't do the whole thing right now, but here's some of the things I would be having in mind as I'm reading a text like this, going, well, how much of that is for me and in what way? I would be looking for things that are generalized and principles-based versus things that are very specific and detail-based. Right? That's kind of like the most obvious thing. If there's a general principle that's spoken, like there's a place in the Bible that says, so much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That one sounds like one that pretty much all of us should be trying to apply in our lives. Like the stuff that comes right before it, I think in that text is like, say hi to you know, such and such a name. <laughs> Right? That one is way too specific for us. If we spent our spiritual lives going to try to find someone by that weird old name to say hi to them and be obedient to the scriptures, we would have been uh, undertaking a, an extremely elaborate adventure in missing the point. Right? So generalized versus specific is the number one thing I think that can be helpful to us with this question. I also want to be looking for cultural differences. Yes, the culture of the Bible, of the time when the Bible was written, matters a great deal. And not every uh, cultural expectation is present today as it was then. And so not every uh, rule or idea or teaching that was given in a specific culture is going to mean the same thing exactly for us today in our different culture. Very important to keep that in mind. To me, the most important one of all, now this is the gospel um, reading today, it's all about Jesus, but not every text has Jesus like right front and center the way this one does. And so I'm always wanting to look and say, of, from what I know of Jesus, both from reading the Gospels and reading the rest of the New Testament that talks about the Gospel stories, and from being a person who's, I hope, had the Holy Spirit working in my life for a long time, what does, what does the thing I'm reading today look like in light of all of that Christ-centered understanding that... that is the sort of engine of my faith, and I hope the engine of your faith too. I will point out that Jesus, it seems like he can feel the anxiety coming off of them, the way I could feel the frustration coming off of you a minute ago, and he's, he says to them at one point, be alert, I've already told you everything. I love that sentence. Because they're asking him, I'm sure, like all these follow-up questions, right? Sometimes you don't get every single word of the conversation reported in the text, probably. I imagine them asking all kinds of follow-up questions. I know I would have some. You see one of them, like, could you maybe tell us the specific thing that we should look for to happen right before that all happens? Because I want to know how to get out of here and when, right? <laughs> he doesn't seem to want to give them exactly that. He basically says to them, Pay attention because people are going to try to lead you every which way. And that's something that hasn't stopped in the intervening 2,000 years. And then extending out from that concept of what does my understanding of Jesus tell me about the thing that I'm reading, I'm also going to be looking for the fruit of the applications of these texts. You don't have to look very far in American culture to see how a lot of different Bible passages have borne certain types of fruit. 
When it comes to this apocalyptic stuff that Jesus is talking about here, the sun going dark and the moon not giving its light and earthquakes and all of that stuff, see how to say this. You want to look for the fruit of the teaching about those passages, which is to say, what is it producing in people's lives and what is it producing in our culture and in our world? Are those things, things that we would call healthy and good and holy or are they things that we would call something else? When it comes to the specific gospel passage that we're looking at today, I'll tell you my opinion about how to interpret this. My opinion is that most of the very specific stuff that Jesus is talking about, especially the predictive stuff, was actually about events that took place very soon after his death and resurrection. Right? In other words, not things that we're still waiting to see 2,000 years later, but things that happened shortly after he spoke the words. Right? In the lifetimes of many of the people who were listening to him in that moment. Specifically, I would say that what he's talking about here is a sort of a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which actually historians, secular and religious, will tell you happened in the year 70 CE or AD. Right? So about 40 years later, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of another, you might say. Now, of course, there's lots of pastors and scholars who disagree with what I just said, and they're probably smarter than me. It doesn't actually take that much. I, I certainly don't claim to have, like, every single correct answer, and if you remember what I said last week, I have learned to hold my interpretations loosely in an open hand rather than in a clenched fist, because sometimes they seem to change on me. But once again, I do look for the fruit of various interpretations. And I have to say that the interpretations that are preoccupied with apocalypse do not seem to produce very Christ-like fruit. I think the most important thing I have learned about being a Christian over the last five years or so is to look for the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard me say this before. You've heard me credit my spiritual director, Sister Sheila Briety, many times. She's, she works in the Ignatian tradition, and what she has told me is that St. Ignatius tells us to look for the fruit. There's a passage in the New Testament that says the fruit of the Spirit, and some of you know the song that goes along with this, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I always miss one, and I always say them out of order. But those are the fruit of the Spirit. And if, if an interpretation of the Bible is producing something other than that, it's, it's pretty good evidence that that interpretation is not Spirit-led. And when an interpretation of the Bible produces anger, fear, hatred, bigotry, arrogance, self-centeredness, closedness in communities, that, to me, is very clear evidence that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with that interpretation, that that is something that is um, coming from a different place. What Ignatians might call the dark spirit. Right? You call it what you wish. What I would like to do now is step away from the Gospels for the time being. We'll get back to them. We always do. 
I'm going to leave you slightly unsatisfied about Mark 13, I have a feeling. But I want to turn to another one of our chosen readings for today, and that's the epistle reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You might have heard this read earlier in the service. And don't sweat it if you didn't, because we're going to look at it together. This is a different category of, of literature, by the way. I can't turn these pages. There we go. First uh, Thessalonians is, is what is called an epistle. It's a letter. It's from the Christian scriptures. But whereas the, the book of Mark is a gospel, which tells the stories of Jesus narratively, uh, the book of Thessalonians, first and second, are letters written to Christian people in the churches um, after the time of Jesus on earth had ended. Um, so it's a different category of literature, but also it, it has some sections in it, if you were to read the whole of First Thessalonians, that seem somewhat apocalyptic. There's some of that same language to be found here. Um, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, I should tell you, not... The entire Christian scriptures are not like this, right? <laughs> I think the season of Advent is pointing us in this direction more often than, than we would typically be pointed. It's you know, seeking to prepare our hearts for Christmas, um, but also for Jesus' return, right? And so, when we come to the, the reading from 1 Thessalonians today, what we have is the very end of the letter, almost the very end. Like There's just a few verses after today's reading before the book you know, stops and you have to turn the page to the next book of the Bible. I want you to think about, those of you who have ever written a letter before, um, when you're writing a letter to a friend or family member, what do you put at the end of it? Do you put the most important stuff at the end? The most important stuff about your relationship with the person you're writing to at the end? That's what I do when I write a letter. Right? So my letters might say, you know, dear... You know, um, so-and-so, <laughs> we had a great dinner last night. Uh, the dog got into the left or Hall Halloween candy. He got sick. Jane got a 1,500 on SATs. And then at the end, as I'm closing, I say, I love you so much. Never forget how much I love you. Can't wait to see you again. Tell Dad I love him too. I guess I'm writing to my mom in this imaginary letter. I'm not sure about taking the SATs right after Halloween, but it's an imaginary letter. You get the point, right? The point is that you write a letter, you put some kind of informational stuff in it, and then at the very end, you have this moment, not always, but you have this moment of kind of like really peaceful establishment of the relationship that you're kind of celebrating in that letter. So I want to take a look and tell you what's at the very end of this letter. It comes after, my point is it comes after all the apocalyptic stuff. And it's verses 16 through 24 that we looked at today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So in light of all that other stuff that might be sort of anxiety-inducing for the readers of that letter then and now, the author here we think is the Apostle Paul, says rejoice, pray, give thanks. 
a couple verses before, he says, be at peace with one another. Now, these instructions here at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm not saying that they're easy or that they should come naturally to you with no effort. Rejoice always. It's been a hard year, maybe. Pray without ceasing. Well, depending on your definition of prayer, that might be enough to <laughs> drive you into an anxiety attack just on its own. Right? If you have a, a fair, by the way, if you have a fairly narrow definition of what prayer is, dear God, I've been a good boy this year. Please give me the following things. Amen. Signed me. <laughs> right? Then praying without ceasing is going to feel awful to you. <laughs> You're going to be like, I already said all this stuff. I don't have anything else to say. And so for people who struggle with pray without ceasing, my number one piece of advice is expand your definition of prayer. Include more things in it. Make everything you do prayerful. And then pretty soon, maybe you'll get to the point where you could even entertain the possibility of praying without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That is some very heavy spiritual labor. It's something that I think you can do. But if you don't handle that one carefully, that could do some harm. If you've been told, by the way, for example, to give thanks for something that's happened to you that is actually clearly evil, that would be called spiritual abuse. And I know that that's happened to some of you. You know, possibly alongside other types of abuse. And so you might be, I don't use this word casually or flippantly, but you might be sort of triggered by the, the exhortation to give thanks in all circumstances. I just want to tell you that's okay if you feel that way. Then he goes on to say, do not quench the spirit. Remember the fruit of the spirit? Do not quench the spirit. I would say, including by all of your interpretations of this apocalyptic stuff he's just written to you. Do not despise the words of prophets. Some of us are ready to do that, by the way. All that predictive stuff can just go in the bin. But test everything. Hmm. How do you test it? Well... Among other things, you might look for the fruit of the Spirit. Hold fast to what is good. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Abstain from every form of evil. Sometimes you do have work to do in your own life. You have got to take care of the mess that you have made, that you are continuing to wallow in, sometimes. But if that's the extent of a preacher's call to you, and the, the, the narrow definition of what God's call on your life is, then I think that's missing a lot of other stuff that's important. And then he says, May the God of peace sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, The one who calls you is faithful and will do this. So in after saying all of the apocalyptic stuff, and, and after reading all that stuff from Mark 13, I want you to actually stay with, end, end today. I want to end today so that you hear in the, at the 
last part of the letter, which is my sermon to you today, that God is faithful and that God will do this work in you. That you do not have to be afraid or anxious. At the benediction, you'll hear another epistle reading from the season of Advent that says, God is faithful. By God, you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is my prayer for you on the first Sunday of Advent. That you would be alert. That you would be alert. But that you would not be anxious. It's my prayer for you that you would feel the sting of conviction for what you have done and what you have left undone. And that anticipating the return of Jesus would inspire you to repent. And remember that the word repent simply means to have a change of mind and a change of heart first. That then leads often to a change of behavior. That you would not allow that conviction to convert you into the religion of fear. It is my prayer for you that you would release your need to control everything and to allow, and I would say maybe even submit to the work of God that it might take place in your life, but that this would be a gesture of trust in God's love and a desire for it to multiply out from you into the whole world. It's my prayer for you this Advent season that you would trust and believe the words that you have read and heard in the scriptures today, that they are true. Not because they offer you a precise roadmap for the future or for eternity, but because they point you toward the guide and shepherd of our souls, whose arrival we anticipate in this season. And it is my prayer for you that this Advent would be one of honesty and reflection, of repair, of healing, and of preparation for the joy of Christ's arrival. At Christmas, in the last days, whatever that ends up meaning. And most important of all, for Christ's arrival every day and in every moment of your life. Because I believe he is with you even now. Calling you forward in giant leaps and little baby steps. If only you will pause long enough to listen and to follow. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.